I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rare Extra. For more than a decade, governments, nonprofits, and industry organizations involved in rare disease have stated, as a matter of fact, that there are 7,000 rare conditions, or estimated the number to be between 5,000 to 8,000. The sources of these estimates are challenging to identify given the circular nature of citations among groups repeating these figures. What's more, these estimates have remained static even though nearly 300 new rare genetic diseases are added to principal knowledge bases each year. In an effort to develop a true count of rare conditions, RareX recently completed a research project that found the actual numbers approaching 11,000. We spoke to research lead and Alexion Senior Director of Data Science, Sebastian Lefebvre, Vice President of Patient Experience for Alexion, Wendy Erler, and RareX CEO, Charlene Sun-Rigby, about the new paper, The Power of Being Counted, the significance of its findings, and what the implications are for rare disease patient communities. An editor's note before we begin, since recording this podcast, the authors of the RareX study have updated their work, and revised the total number of rare diseases they identified to 10,867. Seb, Wendy, Charlene, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We're going to talk about a new report from RareX that finds that the commonly used figure that there are about 7,000 rare diseases grossly understates the true number that are out there. Why the actual number is approaching 11,000 and the significance of this. Seb, let's start with you since you did the research behind this finding and congratulations on the impressive work. I should also congratulate Kurt Lamoureux, who was the lead author on the paper, who like you was diligent in doing this work. But let's start with the numbers. What did you find? So first, um, start with the data source. So we used uh, both Orphanet, which is a European base, and OMIM, which is out of John Hopkins, as two main sources of rare disease information. And we took the data as of December 11, 2021. And by bringing this data together and removing duplicates and overlap, we got to 10,869 rare conditions. At a high level, um, we decided to focus on sensitivity. And as such, we ended up counting all disorders that have no subtypes or disorder subtypes, right? So for example, if you take uh, the Batten disease, well, it has six subtypes like CLN1. So in this case, we would count six subtypes uh, for Batten disease. And what's the argument for doing that? I, I mean, as as I think of the therapies that are out there today for Batten disease, not that there are many, but 
usually they're targeting just one subtype. Well, that's part of the rationale for counting, uh, you know, the subtypes essentially, which is whether it's genetic, whether it's, um, you know, a different age of onset, whether it's a uh, different, um, you know, uh, symptoms or emergent or the pattern of inheritance. You got, you got the variant from both of your parents, only one of them. That impacts the severity of some of those conditions. So focusing on the subtypes is the way to go when you look at where we're heading with precision medicine. So 10,869, break that down for me. Help, help me understand what that number consists of. Yes. Yeah, so let's first, just a high level again, look at, you know, where the contribution for this number come from. So, you know, Orphanet brings you roughly, you know, 6,000 uh, disorders with an additional 1,000 subtypes. So that gives you within the six to 8,000 ballpark. Now you add, you know, about 2,000 rare genetic conditions from OMIM that do not overlap with the Orphanet set. And then you add one last chunk, which is the 2,500 of rare uh, genetic conditions that are essentially subtypes of an Orphanet entry. And that brings you over the 10,000. Once you look at this data set, 61% roughly have known genetic underpinning. 25% are suspected genetic, so mostly OMIM entry, because OMIM is focused on genetic diseases. And then there's a 13% that's just unknown from a genetic standpoint. Um, and then if you break it down further by classification, for example, 23% um, of them are developmental in nature. 19% um, don't have uh, classification at all, and most of those are uh, OMIM entries. 14% uh, neurology, and 5% are metabolic. Um, uh, note, uh, noteworthy is oncology only makes 3% of this set, and then 38% make up the rest of those disease. And I will leave you with one last uh, way to look at this uh, 10,000 plus uh, diseases is that 20% are definitely poorly defined. So they lack what we call phenotypic information. So basically, symptoms, biomarker, um, are just not um, available for those. And 80% of them do have some kind of phenotypic information to some degree. And that is important for the diagnostic um, you know, part of this equation. You mentioned Orphanet and Omen for listeners who may not be familiar with these. What are they and, and why did you start there? Yes. So Orphanet is European-based and, and their job is really to bring together uh, information about all those uh, rare diseases uh, that are seen in Europe, but also uh, around the world. So they've done a fantastic job at pulling together and classifying all those uh, conditions, essentially. So this is an authoritative database? Yes. And um, it comes from cases that they see around the Orphanet ne uh, clinical network. And OMEN? So OMEN is out of John Hopkins, and, and essentially that uh, data set or, 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 or website is really focused on 
uh, what they call Mendelian disease, which is, you know, genetic in nature. So anything that is inherited or as a genetic cause finds itself to some extent in OMIM. We keep hearing that there are 7,000 rare diseases, that there are between 6,000 and 8,000 rare diseases. There has been some notable work by the Monarch Initiative that aligns quite closely with your findings, but how are these numbers derived and why is there this discrepancy? I I think mostly due to um, how we count uh, rare disease, whether you group them up or start counting the subtypes. I think that's one key factor. Um, But also uh, the way we name and describe the disease today, right? We describe them by the physician who first found the case, uh, whether by the main symptoms or physical representation of the disease, but we're not so much focused on the molecular cause, even though, as, as I mentioned earlier, the majority of rare diseases are genetic in nature, right? So um, that's another factor. And then lastly, on a monthly basis, you know, uh, uh, new genetic disease are being discovered. So this number will continue to grow. And um, what we have done, just like uh, Monarch has done, is just we took a basically a precision medicine viewpoint and, and focused on identifying the various patient population so that we counted all the disease subtypes because their underlying molecular cause may vary. Could be your inheritance, your gene, your age of onset, the way the disease progresses, the severity, and if eventually the treatment varies at the subtype level. And that's why we went down to the subtype, where I'm guessing a lot of those um, you know, publications around the 7,000 or 6 to 8,000 or more at the grouping level um, than the subtype. Uh, level. Let's dig a little deeper there. Uh, This is not an estimate, but an actual count you undertook. If someone wanted you to name the 10,869 disorders, and I'm not going to have you do that, (laughs) but you could list them. So walk me through the methodology and rigor for how you arrived at that number, what was included and what Mm -hmm. wasn't. And I know there were some judgment calls involved here. You know, give me a sense of what those judgment calls were. Okay. So as I mentioned earlier, we started with OMIM and Orphanet for reasons described. Orphanet is orphan disease focus, and a lot of the rare diseases are genetic focus, and then OMIM plays another key role. So the first and foremost, we had to clean up those data sets, right? So um, there's a lot of stuff or entries that are inactive, obsolete, have been removed or have been moved because there's a better way or a better description of the disease and they realize these two entries are the same, so they remove one, so things like that. So we cleaned up Orphanet, but we also did the same with OMIM, right? But with OMIM, we went a bit further because it's genetic condition doesn't mean it's rare, right? So we had to remove uh, the non-disease, the non-rare, and we also removed the susceptibility to, right, from OMIM. And all of this was done using the annotation or the information that OMIM provides us, whether on the website or from our ability to download the data set. But we also needed to manually review around 1,000 OMIM entries 
to assess whether or not they were non-rare or non-disease. And when we say non-disease, we say things like trait, like it could be this, this variant or this gene modification, uh, you know, causes a different color of your eyes or your hair, right? These are trait. So by removing the non-rare and the non-disease uh, from that 1,000, uh, we removed about 478 non-rare and non-disease from there. And uh, when we did this manual curation, we really focused on sensitivity. So for example, if we couldn't find anything around prevalence or the incidence about the condition, then we considered it to be rare. Um, once the data set was cleaned up, we started by including all orphanet disorders without subtypes and the disorders with subtypes, and that gave us 6,282 conditions. We then went to OMIM and took only the OMIM conditions that had no overlap with orphanet. That gave us 2,067 conditions. And then lastly, we looked at the OMIM entries that were narrower match to an orphanet entry. In this particular case, would be considered as a subtypes and uh, obviously removed anything that's exact to orphanet, anything that, you know, would be like, uh, we removed the parent of that. So the orphanet disorder and the OMIM narrow match, we didn't count the, the parent, we just counted the subtypes, right? And that gives us 2,520 condition. So if you add, you know, these three numbers, you basically get to eight, uh, 10,869 conditions. Let's bring Wendy in here. As someone who heads patient advocacy at a leading rare disease drug developer, why does getting a more accurate number of rare disorders matter to patients and caregivers? Thanks so much. And Seb, incredible work that you've been able to lead. As we've been talking about, we can acknowledge and all agree the number of rare diseases really is in flux. And fundamentally, without more accurate tracking and identification, it's patients who suffer and families who suffer. As scientists discover more diseases and refine their understanding of ones that we know now today, we continue to identify, but we really haven't updated the number. And then kind of a related issue is that scientists and researchers don't always define or identify various diseases in the same way. So there's a lot of terminology, a lot of registries, a lot of patient reported data, and each may have its own strategy for description. Rare diseases often aren't included in standard clinical terminologies. And we know and fundamentally believe better counting of rare diseases will lead to better patient outcomes, but will also, as somebody who works for a drug developer, I can say unequivocally, better understanding and counting of rare diseases will lead to more investment in research of these rare diseases, which then can hopefully lead to better treatments. Well, Help me understand the, the drug developer's perspective on this. How does having a, a true picture of the number and impact of rare diseases inform the opportunity to develop new medicines? You know, if we think about it kind of and simple, simplify it, because Seb shared a lot of complicated information that's really data-driven and makes sense. But it's, as he mentioned, we know the vast majority of rare diseases have a genetic origin. So about 85 or more percent of rare diseases are genetic. That means there's a lot of family information within that diagnosis and understanding that disease. 
and single gene disorders, those caused by a mutation or a defect in a single gene, we know those genes code for a normal cellular biological process, but something's gone wrong. So all of that is information. And with information, we drive the interest and commitment to research. And so the more information we have and the more a drug developer and a pharmaceutical company can know about a specific disease, the more availability there are of biomarkers and other pieces of information, the better we can plan a research path and then seek investment in and commitment to delivering that research. So it all ties together, but if we don't have that accurate number and way to describe rare diseases, we're sort of still, you know, just throwing everything at the wall instead of having a systematic path to um, being able to commit to research and development in a particular rare disease. One of the things that emerged from this paper was a map of the journey rare disease communities should think about as they move from having an unrecognized disease to one that has treatments and even a cure. Can you explain that? How does this work inform learning about more rare diseases and, and why does it matter? Yeah, I think this is the part that's the most important because at the end of the day, we're talking about rare diseases, we're talking about numbers, but what we're really talking about is families, patients, and often parents. So the rare disease journey has been described as an odyssey, and that word alone really does kind of bring into focus what we're talking about. And so often, Families recognize that something is wrong. They know that there's there's something not quite right. It's usually with their um, child or loved one. Once they, they recognize that and they start to seek answers, this odyssey really begins. And so next comes this process of trying to obtain a diagnosis. It points to, again, the importance of being counted and having all of these diseases as much as possible continue to be recognized because if we can shorten that time to diagnosis, we improve this odyssey or experience. And this is often self-led. It's parents and family members and people who care about them driving the process of obtaining the diagnosis within a navigating complex healthcare system. People have to self-advocate. They have to advocate for access to specialists. They have to question those people in white coats who say it's in your imagination or it's this when they know it's not that. It's a really emotional burden, um, often comes at huge personal financial expense and high emotional cost. And then, you know, you said the word cure. That's a dream for most, but most of these rare diseases don't even have a treatment, much less a cure. And finding that treatment when none currently exists is really a big part of this process. And this is where we have to take patient centricity from being words on a wall to really recognize patients and caregivers are the experts in this whole odyssey. They come to the table with accurate data, validated information, true disease experience. By, by really seeing this expertise as a piece of the puzzle, and then not having to reinvent the wheel um, as we seek to learn more is really critical. So I think that the journey part that patients and families go through can in a small way be aided by having a more accurate count and um, name to these rare diseases. 
Charlene, let, let me bring you in. Uh, RareX is a, a collaborative platform for global data sharing. Why did it undertake this study? Yeah, thanks, Danny. So RareX has developed an open platform for collecting patient-reported data on rare diseases, and we're doing this across disorders. But beyond our technology, really at our roots, we're a patient advocacy organization. You know, so our mission is to collect, structure, and share critical patient data at scale. And our intent is to really dramatically accelerate understanding of diseases and, of course, therapy development. We're doing this in a way that enables patients to own their data. And this gives them a real seat at the table for research. And at the same time, we're trying to deburden them so that they can do this data collection without having to become experts in data governance, research protocols, survey development, data standards, et cetera. Um, going back to this point about this study, Ensuring the true magnitude of rare diseases is understood and accepted is really critical. It's foundational to progressing um, work for rare disease patients and rare disease communities. And that's why um, this study is called Be Counted. Rare disease groups must be counted to be recognized. This is critical, you know, for, you know, Wendy did such an excellent job of describing all of the, you know, social and psychological um, you know, challenges. And, you know, Seb also talked about the criticality of this as we move toward precision medicines. I want to point out that RareX supports data collection for undiagnosed patients. Um, our goal is to support their effort to get a diagnosis and really to get a name for their condition. This is deeply personal for me as we spent three years searching for a diagnosis for my daughter, who was finally diagnosed with a rare neurodevelopmental disorder. Getting a name for one's condition and really getting recognition that one has a distinct and specific condition is truly the first step on the road to therapies. As you think about the continuum that Wendy talked about, the movement of a disease from being unknown to identified to diagnosable to treatable, what role does data play and the type of data gathering and analysis RareX is enabling Characterizing diseases, which is identifying and understanding symptoms, understanding the progression of a condition, is really critical to advancing this continuum from unknown to diagnosed to treatable. Um, there is a differentiation um, you know, that we made around poorly defined versus diagnosable conditions in the study. And, you know, on some level, diagnosable is a very minimal bar. To get from diagnosable to treatable requires comprehensive and fine-grained characterization of a condition. And importantly, this data needs to be collected in a high-quality and research-ready way. So what does this mean? At RareX, we've invested significantly in mapping to data standards, like the Human Phenotype Ontology, like OMIM, like HL7 and other standards that will really facilitate research. So to generate insights out of this data and to also facilitate aggregation of data across data sets. We've deployed a truly open data analysis platform and this enables us to break down silos of data and really break through traditional challenges to data access. 
As a rare disease community, we have urgency to spur research and researchers forward. And one key way to do this is by making robust data easily yet appropriately available. The other thing that emerged was the essential role a small number of databases play in listing a condition and lifting it from obscurity and and the importance they can play in catalyzing research and enabling diagnosis and improving treatments. Seb, can you speak to that? Yes. So um, as you look at, you know, how people are diagnosed today, right? The, the, The doctors and clinician every day, they use this process called differential diagnostic where you compare and contrast diseases uh, that, uh, you know, could be uh, associated with the patient. And if that information is not available, right, then no tools or website, right, will be there and the, the disease will not show up as an option. So these databases are essentially uh, providing that information, whether genetic or phenotypic, that is essential by these tools, but also the websites like OMIM and Orphanet, to support that process. So I would say getting um, a disease, genetic and phenotypic information, any kind of disease database to start with patient registries, for example, but eventually make your way to OMIM or Orphanet is, is key to supporting that differential diagnostic um, you know, process that you see happening in a clinic every day. I'll throw this question out to everyone, but what steps should patient communities take to get their diseases on the map and and drive research and and drug developers and providers to act? I'd like to hear from all of you. Let's start with Seb. Yeah, so like I was just describing earlier, the, the information has to be found somewhere. So, you know, as a patient community, I think the first step has to be find your, you know, gather your data and get it somewhere. And the way to do that could be through patient registries, uh, partnering with, you know, uh, researchers on, in, in your own uh, disease um, area, but definitely get the genetics and the phenotypic information uh, captured. Once you've got that, then you the ball starts essentially rolling and then publication occurs, and then that gets picked up by the OMIM and the Orphanet um, databases of this world, which then gets picked up by the tools, which then at the end of the day helps the whole drug discovery and, and treatment process. Wendy, how about you? Yeah, I think this is probably the crux of the biggest, most important question, and it really starts with building that community. And, and when we think about the definition of community, it's it's bringing a group of people together that share common interests and goals. And so that's patients, that's researchers, that's advocacy groups. It's anybody that can come together and advance this goal. And for individuals, particularly those with ultra rare and rare diseases, you know, it's, it's, there's so much responsibility that they take on to fight to be heard. And my personal advice is keep making those phone calls, ask the hard questions, fight for a seat at the table until you really do see that momentum moving. I had the privilege of meeting a family a couple years ago who reached out and their daughter was diagnosed with a rare, um, very ultra rare condition. They're from Panama. 
my company was not researching in that area. And quite frankly, they showed up at our door and we met with them and we were able to do some work to help them use um, an algorithm to get an exact diagnosis and connect them to people who might potentially be interested in research. And so at the end of the day, some of this is all about connection and finding those resources. And we're happy to help any way we can. Charlene, what are your thoughts? I'm in absolute agreement with um, Seb and Wendy. And just to build on Wendy's point around, you know, building community um, and the, you know, oftentimes the start for um, for individuals and families is finding other people via social media. I mean, it's kind of shocking to see how social media has changed the face of rare disease in the last, you know, five years. Um, people can find other people, you know, based on a diagnosis or based on similar symptoms or, you know, clusters of symptoms. And it's such a powerful way since, you know, we have so few rare disease patients of any individual disorder in a specific geography. It's an amazing way to just break through those geographic limitations and really find people around the globe. Um, You know, I, when we got my daughter's diagnosis, um, after feeling, you know, very, very much alone, it was, you know, so amazing to be able to find a face group group um, with other um, STXBP1 families. And so I highly recommend that, um, you know, as um, as an important step of, you know, kind of building your tribe. Um, and then the other thing that, you know, I would say, I mean, we've talked a lot about contributing your data here um, and interfacing with researchers. One thing also that I've seen that's very exciting is the rise of, you know, citizen scientists, you know, um, advocates who are really starting to engage very in a very meaningful way with research, you know, not waiting for researchers to, um, you know, other researchers to get interested, but really, um, you know, spurring forward and, you know, frankly, sparking the research um, on their condition. Seb, uh, we've talked about 80% plus rare diseases being either genetic or suspected genetic causes. Uh, What does this work suggest about the importance of genetic sequencing and, and particularly for patients who are not yet diagnosed seeking such test? Well, the data speaks for itself, right? 61% of rare disease, according to our analysis, have known genetic. So that is a very important uh, biomarker as part of your uh, diagnostic odyssey, right? So absolutely getting sequence is essential. Um, then there's a 25% of those rare disease with suspected genetic well, if we want to clearly define whether they're genetic and causes or not, and what genes involve and, you know, what's the inheritance pattern, we have to get those patients sequenced as well in order to, un- to clearly uh, determine the underlying genetic cause. So, as you say, 80% are rare uh, genetic diseases. So, you, you cannot avoid um, sequencing. It's, 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 it's key. Yeah, and I think I'd add that the path that most rare diseases follow take the rare disease from obscurity to a condition that is well understood. And by well understood, that means researchable and potentially treatable and then readily diagnosed. So it all falls into line with the really important work of this paper is 
inclusion in the knowledge basis of rare diseases is the first milestone to accelerate this path. We know and acknowledge this number will increase over time because there's so many new advances in diagnostics, biomarkers, genomics, proteomics, science is moving fast. Rare diseases collectively represent a very big burden on the healthcare system and a healthcare emergency. So this work is really important. And Wendy, is there advice you could offer uh, patient advocates, patient families who want to see drug companies develop treatments for their particular diseases? What could they do to engage with drug developers and attract them to doing work in a specific condition? Yeah, there's a lot of complexity to that question because there's so much strategic initiative that goes into company decisions about which areas they develop drugs in, what their technology is, what their manufacturing capacity is, a whole lot of things. So it's really complex. But from the patient perspective, I always say to patients and patient advocacy groups, reach out, find the patient advocacy leaders in these organizations or the head of R&D, whomever that leader is that will um, have the conversation. And, and whatever you can bring to the table, whether it's biomarker information, if, if a patient advocacy group has started a registry, that's a robust suite of data. Anything that can help see how much about the condition is understood today. And then another opportunity is, where's this likeness around one condition to another? So if we've learned a lot about one rare disease, how does that impact and accelerate learning of another? Um, anything that's known about the genetics is really helpful. And then it's about holding people accountable and saying, you know, what do you need from us to commit to research in this disease and getting the right voices and the right people at the table to listen. Charlene, what does this research say about the importance for rare disease patients to share their data? Well, we hear the term clinical trial readiness a lot now. And so kind of working back from there, one of the key foundational aspects of developing clinical trial readiness is collecting enough data to characterize um, a disorder. And, you know, as uh, we were just talking about bringing that data into a registry and endpoints, um, which are important in clinical trials to measure the success of a potential therapy can only really be developed once those phenotypes are well understood. Um, so with small and you know, sometimes very small patients in any given disorder, every patient matters. Every patient's individual symptoms, their experience, the progression of their condition is really important to building that complete, that robust picture of a disorder. Um, from a registry perspective, the size of a registry may be used to estimate disease prevalence, as well as how activated a community is, and also how willing a community is to participate in research. So it's really paramount for rare disease patients to contribute their data to speed understanding, research, and ultimately therapy development. And Charlene, I would add, if when we talk to rare disease patients and families, they want to contribute their data. They want all of this information to be shared to help others. So I think there's also this tandem work of, you know, contributing to organizations like RareX. So these data are available in a federated nonprofit open source way so that we can really accelerate research. 
The paper is be counted. You can find it on the RareX website under the Rwork tab. Sebastian Lefavre, Senior Director of Data Science for Alexion, Wendy Erler, Vice President of Patient Experience for Alexion, and Charlene Sun Rigby, CEO of RareX. Thank you all for your time today. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. RareX is a collaborative platform for global data sharing and analysis to accelerate treatments for rare disease. RareX is adapting proven technologies and partnering with leading experts to create a federated data analysis platform specifically designed by rare community leaders and scaled to support the diverse and expanding needs of rare disease research, development, and care. To learn more about RareX, go to rare-x.org. This podcast is produced for RareX by the Levine Media Group. Music is courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.